Thank you, thank you. You may be seated. Team, thank you for leading us. It is a privilege and a joy and an honor to sing alongside of you. I love it every Sunday. So if you will take your copies of the scriptures, please, and if you'll open them to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 this morning. We want to see what we have just sung. We want to see in real life the glory that goes to Jesus, the glory that goes to Jesus alone for his grace that we have just sung about. Mark chapter 2. Now, this is a text that if you were not preaching through a book of the Bible, this is a text that you don't just pick out of thin air to preach. This is a text that, man, in Sunday school, I don't ever remember grow, uh, of uh, learning this story, this part of the text growing up. Maybe that's because as Baptists, we don't like to talk about two things. Fasting, because we like our potlucks, right? And the second thing we don't always like to talk about is wine. And we have both of those in this text this morning. We have fasting and wine. You say, well, now you've got my attention. Here we go, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And we're going to read down through verse 22. Now, I'm preaching this morning on verses 18 through 22. But, but verses 18 through 22 really find their meaning in the fact that they, they come hard on the heels of what happens in verses 13 through 17. So we've got to get the story of verses 13 through 17. Here we go. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to and said to him, that is to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away or snatched away violently from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and may he write these truths. This is a tough text to understand. So as I'm preaching, would you be praying for me that I will present God's word clearly and that you'll be able to understand it and take from it what God would have for you? Now, it's been a few weeks since I've shared a picture of our new grandson, Wesley, and many of you have been asking about him, when's the next picture coming? Okay, so here it is. Here is Wesley. This is at six weeks old now. It's hard to believe he's six weeks old already. Thank you for your prayers for him. He's doing well. Mom and dad are doing well. Grandma and grandpa are doing well. We just wish that they would follow God's leading and come to Chicago, all right? 
But if you are a parent, you know that when a baby arrives, it changes things. It is a massively status quo changing, life interrupting, sleep depriving thing, right? Your whole world is turned upside down. But you know what? You wouldn't have it any other way. There is nothing quite like the joy of new life. And that's what today's text in Mark chapter 2 is all about. When Jesus arrives on earth, like when a baby arrives in a family, things change big time. And I'm not just talking about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. I'm talking about his ministry, his teaching, his healing, his dying, his rising again. Jesus isn't another life coach giving out sage advice. He isn't another rabbi with a fresh take on the old-time religion. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior. He doesn't come to tinker. He comes to transform. He doesn't come to make good people better. He comes to make sinful people saints. He comes to save us. Not just from our sins, but from ourselves. He comes to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He comes to put the broken back together again by bringing the spiritually dead to life again. When Jesus comes, everything changes. There's new life. And that's something to celebrate. Today Tomorrow and forever, new life that Jesus brings stimulates this unshakable, unbreakable, eternal joy. So let me ask, church, do we have that? Because when Jesus meets a tax collector named Levi and forgives his sins, and gives him a new heart and a new life, a party breaks out. A full-blown, celebrate Jesus and his grace kind of party. And Levi invites all of his friends. And who are his friends? Well, they're sinners. They're tax collectors. All of them he knows he brings into his home because they need the new life he's been given. And there's no better way to show sinners their need for grace and new life than to invite them over and celebrate the one who's given you that new life by his grace. But notice there's a group of guys who aren't at the party here because they hate grace. They won't celebrate grace. Their whole response to grace is to ask a question. Jesus, why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' answer to their question, it stings. It leaves a mark. You know why I hang out with sinners? Because they're the ones I came for. The people you think are the outsiders, they're really the insiders. And the people you think are the insiders like you are really the outsiders. Because the only way to get into the party of grace is by grace, not works. By my righteousness, not your own righteousness. Whoa, 
Do you hear this? Jesus has just thrown down the gauntlet on self-righteous rule-keeping. On man-made traditions and rituals. On rules and laws that are in addition to what he has commanded in his word. Wow. You see, the big idea of this text is that my standing with God is gained and my standing with God is kept not by anything I do, or who because, because of who I am. It's all because of what Jesus has done and who he is because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the big idea of this text. It isn't Jesus plus me. It's Jesus for me. It isn't the good I do, the places I don't go, the money I give, the prayers I say, and then I kind of just add Jesus into the mix like his role is to come in and patch up the bad stuff I do that my good stuff can't make up for. Jesus says, listen, it doesn't work that way. I'm not here as an add-on to your man-made religiosity. I'm here as the way and the truth, and the life. And so no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not me plus anyone. It's not me plus anything. It's me plus nothing. And that equals everything. John 14, 6. So do we believe that? Do we believe that nothing we do, no rules we keep, no places we don't go, no things we don't eat or drink, or words we don't say, don't impress God? Don't earn us any favor with Him or keep us in favor with Him. Do we believe that? Because when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, the Pharisees aren't going to let Jesus get away with that kind of talk. They're going to come after him. And they're going to do it using another group of guys who aren't real sure about this Jesus thing. They go to John the Baptist's disciples. Now, John the Baptist, remember, we met him in Mark chapter 1. He is always telling people about Jesus. He's always pointing people to Jesus with John the Baptist. It's always about Jesus. But right now, in Mark chapter 2, John the Baptist is in prison. He's about to lose his life by losing his head. And so there's something that John's disciples just can't understand about Jesus and his disciples. It's this. Why the party? Why the joy? Why the celebration when everyone else is fasting? At least all of us religious people are. And here you are partying at Levi's house with your disciples? What gives? What's up, Jesus? Well, the question here is a bit misleading because Jesus and his disciples do observe an annual fast that God had commanded back in Leviticus chapter 16. God commanded the Jews to abstain from, from food on the Day of Atonement, which 
today we know as and refer to as Yom Kippur. You could fast. You could fast as often as you would like. But if you're like me, fasting once a year would be plenty because that's all God required. But then the Pharisees came along. And they decided that God did not go far enough. God did not say enough. God did not require enough. And so they decided that they would come up with their own rules and their own laws and their own regulations by which people could then earn their way into God's good graces. They decided that the Jews should fast Every week, actually twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., no food at all. Now, we, we know about fasting, right? I mean, we read in the Bible about fasting. It's not wrong to fast. Um... We're mourning, sometimes when we're mourning over our sin or we're mourning over the hurt and the pain and the sorrow of life in prayer. And so we fast from food. But that's not what the pharisaical fasting was all about. It was an empty religious ritual. It's one of the ways these guys paraded their self-righteousness in front of the world. It's why they always went public with their fasting. They would rub ashes all over their heads and their faces, and then they would do what ladies used to do back in the 80s. They used to tease out their hair. Remember the 80s? Remember the big hair of the 80s? Maybe that only happened in Missouri. I don't know. Um, But remember the big hair? These guys, the the, the Pharisees, they'd mess up their hair. They'd throw ashes all over their faces. And then they would put on old beaten up robes. And they'd walk around like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, drawing attention to themselves by saying things like, Woe is me. My holiness is so great I can hardly stand beneath its weight. My massive self-righteousness is my cross to bear. And that's why Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee walking into the temple, standing in the middle of the courtyard there, praying publicly like this. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these other people, like this publican and sinner over here, because I fast twice a week. Wow. And that's how we get when we add rules to what God has said. That's what we get when we put God's words, or when we put words in God's mouth that he never intended to say. And Jesus tells us here why these Pharisees did what they did, praying in the temple and talking like that about that sinner. I thank you, I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. Luke chapter 18 tells us why these guys prayed like that and why they treated people like that. It's because they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. And so they treated others with contempt. Listen. Self-righteous rule-keeping kills relationships. I've been a pastor for 20, almost 28 years now. 
You're like, there's no way you're that old. I know what you're thinking. Yes, I really am. 28 years. I wish I could tell you stories, the stories, of of young people growing up in churches like ours where rules became the deal. And it killed the parents' relationships with their kids. Self-righteous rule-keeping kills relationships. Treating others with contempt. Because self-righteous people are consumed with only one person. Me. How good I am. How deserving I am. How bad others are and how undeserving they are. And so, I don't show grace Because I don't know grace. I despise others rather than love others. I judge others rather than forgive others. And frankly, I'm miserable rather than joyful. But I can keep the rules that I've made up. In our church growing up, there was a friend of mine who about the age of eight was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome. Tourette's is a syndrome, it's a ticking syndrome with involuntary muscle movements, voice inflections, grunting. And and this young man's mom became very angry. Now when... And it affected so many of her relationships with others. When you're a preacher's kid, your mom and dad shelter you from so much of what goes on behind the scenes in the church. But a few years ago, mom and dad relayed to me a conversation that they had held with this young man's mom. It went something like this. My son has Tourette's. I did nothing to deserve this. It's not fair. I only have one son, and he has Tourette's. You have three sons, and none of them have Tourette's. If God were fair, my one son would not have Tourette's, and one of your three would. When it comes about when it when it comes to be about what I deserve and what's fair because of what I've done or not done, I will treat others with contempt. Souls will lie in the wake of my righteous rule keeping. That's what self righteousness does. It kills relationship, it, relationships. It kills mercy. It kills joy. Just like with the Pharisees here. 
Because they are treating even Jesus with contempt because he doesn't meet up to their standard. Imagine this, the sinless holy son of God isn't keeping their rules. And so they ask, why don't you fast like all of us righteous people? And Jesus answers their fasting question with a feasting question. Notice, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, how many of you love weddings? I mean, if you were given the choice between going to a wedding or a funeral, how many of you would choose the wedding every time? All right, good, good. We all love weddings. Why do you love weddings? Because weddings are what? They're happy. They're joyful. They're festive. It is a celebration. One of the cool things about being a pastor is that I get a front row seat to all the joy. I get to stand here and up close and personal. I get to see the groom as he watches the bride walk down the aisle. I get to hear the joy in their voices when they exchange vows and declare their love before the world. I get to say to the groom, it's now time for you to kiss the bride. And everybody in the congregation is like, yes! That's why we came, right? Just to see the kiss. It's joyful. It's celebratory. It doesn't get any better than a wedding. Now imagine it's your wedding. Remember back to your wedding. If you're married, um, remember back to your wedding day. If you're not married, think forward to your wedding day. Uh, For me and Joanna, it was June 10th, 1994, Calvary Baptist Church in Highland, Indiana, not too far from here. And, um, but just imagine that, that I'm sitting there awaiting the, the start of the wedding and people are coming in in sackcloth and ashes. And um, if that were the case, now I didn't see Joanna before she walked down the aisle. But if that were to happen If that would have happened and people were walking in in sackcloth and ashes, I would have found her. And I would have asked her one question. Um, Is there something you're not telling me? (laughs) Because everybody's acting like this is a funeral instead of a wedding. Because a wedding is a celebration. It's time for a feast, not for a fast, especially in Jesus' day, because back then, weddings were a way bigger deal than they are even today. Back then, on the day of the wedding, the groom and his buddies, they would go to the groom's home and they'd, leave, they'd lead a, profession, a, profession, a procession to the bride's home. And then they would escort her back, along with her bridesmaids, to that groom's home. And on the way, there would be music, and there would be singing, and there would be dancing. Even the procession itself became a party. The townspeople, they would rise to salute the the beauty of the bride, and they would join in the celebration with clapping and singing and more dancing. And then came the wedding ceremony in the groom's home, which was followed by a wedding feast that puts our wedding receptions to shame. You see, a long wedding reception for us might last three or four hours, but in Jesus' day, the bride and the groom, instead of taking a week-long honeymoon to celebrate, for seven straight days, 
they would throw a party celebrating with their friends and their family their marriage. Here's the analogy. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. My disciples are the attendants at the wedding. And so it is time to party. It is time to feast. It is time to celebrate. Salvation is here in me. But wait. Hold on. Because Jesus says something important here. The wedding celebration, notice the wedding celebration is going to be interrupted when the groom is taken away by force suddenly and violently. The Greek word carries that connotation. Now, I don't know if you've ever been at a wedding where the groom just up and left. We've all seen that in the movies, right? But if you were at a wedding and a groom was taken away by force, you would never forget that. That's what's going to happen to Jesus. This is the first time Jesus predicts his own death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows what's coming. That in the garden, he's going to be ripped away from his disciples. He's going to be crucified. It will all end so suddenly and violently. And Jesus will be dead and buried. And the disciples won't be able to eat. Their feasting and their celebrating will turn to mourning and fasting. But listen, Jesus doesn't stay dead. Amen? He will rise again on the third day. And their fasting and their celebrating Uh, Their fasting will be transformed into feasting. Their mourning to celebrating. Because through his death and resurrection, Jesus will take sinners like Levi and like you and me and like these disciples. And out of pure grace, he will give us new life and make us members of God's family forever. And it is time to feast Time to celebrate like we're Levi, like we're the prodigal son coming limping home to the father out of our sin, throwing ourselves on his grace. And the father opens his arms of grace to us and takes us in and hugs us and embraces us and kisses us and says, it's time to kill the fattened calf. My son who has lost his home, let's party. Let's celebrate grace. And that should radically change everything about us. When we are saved from our sins, not by our self-righteousness, but by the grace of Jesus, we always have something to celebrate. Because listen, Jesus will never be ripped away from us. As his people. As his church. And when Jesus penetrates our soul, he brings his joy with him. It's a perpetual, uncontainable, insuppressible joy. It's what Jesus says in John 15, verse 11. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you. My joy, Jesus kind of joy in us and that your joy may be full. So can I ask, when people walk into our worship services here at Bethel, is this kind of joy what they see? Is it what they hear? This time each week is a celebration. It is a feast. 
Um, can I just say this? Uh, I love our singing here. The singing here over the last six weeks has been incredible. And, and I know you mean what you sing, and I know you feel it in your heart, but can I just ask for some of you, can, can you ask your heart to tell your face that you're happy? To sing about Jesus? Wow. Then people walk into this place. Joy is what they should see. Joy is what they should hear. Because Jesus isn't just with us, he is in us. His presence is so pervasive that it affects and changes radically everything about us. It dominates our marriages, it dominates our homes, it dominates our jobs. Listen, to know Jesus is to know joy. Now, let me be clear here. Joy doesn't mean that we fake it. By putting on plastic happy faces, it doesn't mean that we're numb to the pains and the sorrows and the hurts of living in a broken world. It means that even in our pain and sorrow, there's a joy that the stuff in this life can't touch. And there's a joy that the stuff in this life can't kill. Jesus has come. He's died. He has risen again. And by his grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, he has made us his own forever. And that Jesus-induced joy then is possible only when your mantra is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It isn't a whole lot of Jesus and a little bit of me. It isn't a whole bunch of Jesus' work and a little sliver of my work. It isn't a heaping spoonful of Jesus' goodness with a dash of my goodness thrown in. It's always and only Jesus plus nothing. And that's the point Jesus is driving home with two first century analogies in verses 21 and 22. Now, during last week's Easter sermon, which by the way, I'm still, wow, my heart is still blessed from just being together last week on Easter Sunday. And during last week's Easter sermon, if you remember, I used a 1970s detective, the the 1970s detective Columbo as an illustration. Everybody remember that? Um, And so when I got home, I heard about that from our two daughters. They were like, Dad, you lost me at Colombo. Can you please use illustrations from the 21st century because nobody gets the old people illustrations. So today I want to say something to my daughters. I want to ask them to see right here that Jesus uses two illustrations that nobody in the 21st century is going to get. You see, back in Jesus' day, clothes were made from cotton or wool. And even today, we know that cotton and wool are known for what? Major shrinkage, right? As they age. And so in that day, if you got a hole in your old cotton robe, now we could bring this forward and, uh, to today, and how many of you guys, you have a favorite sweatshirt that you've had since high school? Okay? Um, the rest of you, so there's like three of us, which means the rest of us, are, our wife has probably burned that thing, right? We were unwilling for that to happen, but it happened anyway. Um, Imagine you get a hole in your favorite sweatshirt. 
you try to patch it up with a piece of new, unshrunk cotton cloth. And the next time you wash it, that patch is going to shrink. It's going to tear away from, from, that, from that fabric, and you're going to be left with an even bigger hole than you had before. And you, your heart is going to sink, and you're going to have a funeral for that sweatshirt, okay? Everybody back then got this illustration. They knew it just wouldn't work. As much as you tried, as hard as you tried, as much as you wanted it to work, it just wouldn't work. You can't patch old material with a new patch. Just like you can't put new unfermented wine in brittle old wineskins because in that day they would age their wine by pouring new wine into a wineskin that was made kind of of a goat skin kind of bladder. And as the, as the wineskin held that wine and the wine fermented, it would expand. The gases from the fermentation process would expand the wineskins. And if you tried to pour new wine into old brittle wineskins, the wineskins would bust. They'd break. And you would lose the wine and the skins. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying this, that his message of salvation by grace cannot be stitched into or poured into a salvation by rules and works. In other words, the gospel of Jesus and the works of the Pharisees are inherently incompatible. We can't get to heaven riding the wave of our self-righteousness even with Jesus as our surfboard. Any of you seen the bumper sticker that reads like this? Jesus is my co-pilot. Listen, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you aren't just in the wrong seat. You're on the wrong plane. We can fast twice a week. We can read our Bible every day. We can give 25% of our income to the church. We can volunteer in the nursery and the kids' ministries at church. We could even donate 100 pints of blood at the Red Cross blood drive. But none of that counts when it comes to eternal life, either getting it or keeping it. Because Jesus and self-righteousness don't mix. Like oil and water, like light and dark, Jesus and self-righteousness cannot coexist. It's one or the other forever. And your forever depends on whose righteousness you're counting on to gain you entrance into heaven. So let me ask, is it your righteousness or Jesus' righteousness? It can't be both and. It can't be a lot and a little. It's either or. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who pastored the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, once said that if Satan took over Philadelphia, things would change for the better. All the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who did nothing but smile at one another. And if you know Philadelphia, that's saying something. There would be no swearing Children would always say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and churches would be filled every Sunday if Satan had his way, where the preaching of Jesus would be replaced with the preaching of you. Be good, do good, 
look good. The gospel of Satan isn't the gospel of bad. It's the gospel of good. The gospel of good is eternally dangerous. Listen, there are people out in the world who are going to miss heaven by a hundred miles because of their badness. And there are people in the church who are going to miss heaven by a single inch because of their goodness. But self-perceived goodness is just as dangerous as in-your-face badness because both end in hell. Will you trade your self-righteousness for Jesus' righteousness as your only hope of heaven? That's why Jesus came. He came to live the perfectly holy, righteous life that we could not in our place so that he could die in our place. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, For our sake the Father made him Jesus, the sinless one who knew no sin, to be sin for us. All of our sin laid upon him, him paying the penalty as though he had committed every one of our sins. Why? Because in his death, our sin was imputed to him so that his righteousness could be imputed to us when we trust in him. His righteousness imputed to us, credited to us. Do you believe that? When you stand before the God of heaven, what words will come from your mouth testifying to why you should be there? Jesus and Jesus alone is my only hope of heaven. His righteousness, not mine. His works, not mine. His goodness, not mine. Grace, grace alone. Would you trust in Jesus today? Would you trade your self-righteousness for his righteousness? And for believers, I want to leave you with this today. Listen. We're with the bridegroom. He has made us his own. We are the bride of Christ, all by grace. Do you see the new life that Jesus brings? He will never be taken away from us. He will never leave us, never forsake us. You look to Revelation and what we just sung, what we've just sung before the message this morning. Is he worthy? Yes. And we will reign with him. He'll never be taken from us. So let our our lives ooze the excitement and the joy of the wedding feast. Let's be people whose church services and marriages and families and lives exude the insuppressible, uncontainable joy of the Jesus who saved us because we get what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, that by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's something to celebrate now because it's what we'll be celebrating in eternity. Jesus.
plus nothing equals everything forever and ever. Amen. Father, may you take these truths from your word in a, in a text that isn't real familiar, but it's a message that should be familiar. Help us to see that we can't improve our standing with you by anything we do. It's always and only grace in and through Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you can right now become a believer in Jesus. You can trade your self-righteousness for his righteousness. The Bible says that if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. I plead with you, friend, do it now. Right now, right where you are, trust in Christ. And Christian, is your life characterized by joy? I mean, a genuine, a genuine joy that comes from knowing the Jesus of all grace and life. Has it become, even as a Christian, has it become about what you earn and what you deserve and what you do and the rules you keep? Or is it Jesus? Remember, it's either or. It's not both and. May we rejoice in the grace that saves us and keeps us In Jesus' name, amen.